Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to expanding access to opportunity for all people and advancing economic growth in all places. Learn more about their global commitment by going to jpmorganchase.com. Standing on the intersection of Garrison Avenue and Hunts Point Avenue. Not too long ago, I took the New York subway up to Hunts Point in the South Bronx. If you look around on one corner, you see Bronx glass and lights, auto glass, uh, check cashing, free money orders, a beauty parlor, I do believe, Chinese food, pharmacy, four stars, bodega, lots of graffiti. From this corner, you'll also see the Bruckner Expressway, an elevated pedal-to-the-metal thoroughfare cutting Hunts Point off from the rest of the borough. And the highway right here, the expressway. Hunts Point is New York City's least promising place to grow up. At least that's according to a public policy research group called the Citizens Committee for Children of New York. Nearly a third of families here squeak by on less than $15,000 a year. And the New York Police Department ranks the Hunts Point neighborhood among the city's worst when it comes to crime. But if you wander a few blocks away from the clatter of the Bruckner Expressway and you walk through the door of 866 Hunts Point Avenue... How's it going? Hello! Hello! Good to see you. Nice to see you, too. All those despairing statistics seem a little bit less overwhelming. So, show me around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome. This is our coffee shop. What you're looking at is uh, exposed brick walls, um, you know, a couple areas for seating, and our fabulous kick-ass um, espresso machine. And uh, yeah, we can brew a mean cup of coffee and pull an awesome shot. This is Hunts Point native and resident Majora Carter. Majora recently opened this quiet, cozy outpost of a Manhattan chain known as Birch Coffee. It's the only specialty coffee spot in the area. And that's a fact not lost on Majora's customers the morning I swing by. Is this your first time here? Yes, yeah, she oh. brought me over. She had coffee today. I've seen you before. Awesome. Yeah. So we all support in the and the coffee is good enough to come back. Yay! Yeah, you thank you. Thank you, thank you for supporting local. Seriously, because I'm from literally around the corner. Oh, like, okay. so. All right. And I'm glad you did open it up in here. Yes! There's no coffee shops around. You know, and I don't want to mention the DD or the ST. So, you good. Thank you. My money's on you. Awesome. Thank you so much. DD, by the way, and ST. What Majora's customer is talking about here are Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. The closest Dunkin' is about a mile away. The closest Starbucks is about three. But here in Hunts Point, Birch Coffee isn't Majora's only enterprise. Because Majora Carter? Well, she's a big deal. As head of a for-profit consultancy called the Majora Carter Group, she created Startup Box, a company that hires local gamers to test software and provide customer service for some pretty major tech outfits. Majora also founded Hunts Point Riverside Park. You'll find this popular and picturesque spot on a sliver of land the city and state had wanted to use for a waste transfer station, basically an intermediate dumping area for trash. And Majora isn't done yet, not by a stretch. Next, she and her group plan to start a restaurant incubator in an old Amtrak station near the expressway. It would be a place for local chefs to test out their dreams before betting big on a brick-and-mortar establishment. And Majora is doing all of this in a marginalized neighborhood that, once upon a time, she swore she would leave forever. (laughs) 
I'm Rebecca Shear, and from Slate Magazine, this is Placemakers, stories about the spaces we inhabit and the people who shape them. Now, if the name Majora Carter rings a few bells, well, she's been called one of the nation's 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs, she's received a MacArthur Genius Grant, and she's nabbed awards from everyone from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to the National Building Museum. Her work transforming her old neighborhood of Hunts Point has been groundbreaking in so many ways, I wanted to sit down with her and hear her story, away from the coffee shop and the grind of the espresso machine. So we got together at the Slate Studios, and that's where Majora told me about her upbringing. Her mother, it turns out, was a housewife who raised 10 kids and took care of various other youngsters in Hunts Point. And Majora's dad, who was a couple of decades older than her mom, was a retired janitor. But for most of my life with him, he actually was a gambler. (laughs) Really? A compulsive one, yeah. And so there were times of, you know, feast, never quite famine, because my mom was awesome and knew how to stretch a dollar. But um, yeah, it was an interesting life. Were you aware of what your dad was doing? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like there was moments when, you know, and you could tell, like, you know, it it, it was about, you know, what we were able to eat. We had a huge family. I was the youngest of 10. And again, there were all these other people who were always in our house. And, you know, depending on how, you know, how well he was doing at the track, there was, you know, beans and rice, or it was like really good stuff, like lots, like meat (laughs) at a meal, which was, which was awesome, as opposed to, you know, the rather occasional, you know, piece of food or piece of meat that we would have. And it was like my mother who would like say that she was working on her figure if things were kind of tough. And she'd go, you know, oh, I don't, you know, I'm working on my figure, so I don't need to eat tonight. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so paint more of a picture of, of Hunts Point. What was it like when you were growing up? I was born in 1966, so I grew up in the 70s. And that was, I think, the initial era of what was commonly known at the time as the Bronx is burning, um, where it was actually much more profitable for a homeowner or a particular commercial property owner to to have their building torched to commit arson because there wasn't any kind of financial um, you know, support coming in, whether through loans or any other kind of financing. And so I grew up in that era where landlords were doing this all the time. And so the Bronx in particular, mostly because of the fires, we lost about 60 percent of our population during that time because, you know, with these buildings going up in flames and, you know, some people I'm sure definitely died, but most folks just literally had no place to go. You know, and I remember it very, very keenly aware of it when I became seven years old. Um, That summer, the beginning of the summer, both apartment buildings at either end of my block burned down. And at the end of the summer, my brother was killed in the drug wars. And, And it was just like, this is what the South Bronx was. I mean, even though it was weird because I felt very protected, like I never felt like anything could ever come, any harm could come to me. Because there was people like my family and other families like it, you know, who were left behind as a result of all this. But, yeah, I wasn't blind. But it certainly made me go, I need to get out of here. <laughs> um, I'm like, well, I'm like, oh, God. And then after that, my dog died. And it was just like, oh, no, I hate this place and I want to go. And I started planning my escape with education. So when did you leave home for the first time? First time was college. You know, again, starting at seven years old, planning my escape, I was like, I'm going to be, I, I, I already knew I was smart like that. Everybody told me I was smart. And um, and it was true. I loved learning. And I knew that 
if I got myself into a great high school like the Bronx High School of Science, then that would get me into what I called a name college. And so I did. I got myself into Wesleyan University. And that's the first time I left. And I remember I got a ride up from one of my cousins who lived in Connecticut. And I sat in the back seat of a station wagon and I watched, you know, my house sort of fade into the distance, you know, as it as we moved up the highway and then got into Connecticut. And I was like, I'm I'm still looking back, but I really shouldn't be because I'm I'm out of here and I don't ever need to go back. And yet you did return. I did return. I did return, but not because I wanted to. I was broke and I was starting graduate school and I needed a cheap place to stay. And I went to NYU and that's why I went back home. And at that point, you know, the fires were done, that most of the housing was rebuilt, but it was still like this community, you know, we were taught, you know, the smart, hardworking kids were taught to measure success by how far we got away from our community. Like it was expected that a kid like me, you know, with my reading scores and my math scores, it was expected that I would grow up and quote unquote be somebody. They were like, oh, you're going to grow up and get out of here. And I was like, you bet your bippy I am. <laughs> and I did. So I came home only out of duress, and it did. It felt like such a defeat. And it was, it was kind of crazy because, again, the housing was rebuilt, but there really wasn't anything in the neighborhood to want to keep me there at all. You know, I felt like, you know, culturally that, you know, we, there was just nothing we had in common. You know, like I was interested in the arts, and I was interested in – coffee shops. <laughs> I was interested in, you know, communing with nature. I mean, I was just, I didn't feel like there was anything there for me. And uh, what was interesting was that, you know, through some of the work that I did, I ended up getting um, a job through an AmeriCorps program. It was teaching writing to um, different organizations in, in the Bronx. And so I got uh, all the different writers were put together in a room, you know, to talk about, talk shop about what we did. And one of them happened to be this, this guy named Stephen Sapp, who was a poet and who was working on developing this, this project in the Bronx, this arts and um, youth development organization. And, and I was like, oh, and every time he talked about it, I was like, wow, that sounds so cool. It's like this whole community of artists. And, and it turns out it was two blocks from my house that I was walking by it every single day and never stopped in because I because I'd leave the house so early in the morning and for like six o'clock before they woke me because I was like I don't even want to be here you know when the neighborhood starts to wake up so I was gone before it did and um, and then I realized like oh my gosh and this is an amazing place and so got to know him actually got myself kind of like essentially interned there for a long time and really just fell in love with the arts community that was in the Bronx that kind of converged at this place because there wasn't many other places for them to go. So the arts was sort of the gateway to take you back Mm -hmm. to your neighborhood and feel invested in it. I fit right in and I loved it. And that's when I discovered um, that the city and state were planning on building this huge waste facility on our waterfront and that the South Bronx had already handled an enormous part of that as well. Um, We'd already handled at that point, I think about 40% of the city's commercial um, waste and about and 100% of the Bronx's waste at the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can pretend that I don't see this and no one would blame me. Um, but I could also decide to stay and do something about it. Because there I was. At that point, I was invested, you know, in the community. And granted, it was through the arts. And even though I knew that all the arts in the world wasn't going to save our community from this attack that the city and state had, you know, in their 
infinite wisdom, um, you know, had decided, oh, you know, they won't notice another, you know, huge amount of waste being dumped on them. But, you know, I knew that there had to be another kind of concerted effort to make it happen. So I decided to stay. There's a term that you've used in your work that I want to ask you about, self-gentrifying. What does that mean to you? And, and while we're talking about it, what does gentrification mean to you? How would you define that? I think typically it means that, you know, there's an act of when folks from the outside, outside developers come into a, a local community, buy up all the property and push poor people out and displace them. And then suddenly the neighborhood comes, becomes a great place to live and you know, the creative class is there and yada, yada, yada. Um, and uh, and so there there is really no room in there. I mean, one, one thing that we do know for sure is the neighborhood does get, quote unquote, better. The schools get better. You know, the parks get better if, or they get parks. Um, you know, they get the kind of economic developments that many people in those communities couldn't even dream of having in those neighborhoods beforehand. And, you know, I met the president of a university called Johnson C. Smith University, which is a historically black college down in Charlotte, North Carolina. President Carter actually was his name. No, no relation. Um, but he used the term self-gentrification to describe the appro- their approach to development that was going to be inclusive of the incredibly poor community that was right next to the university because he wanted to do this thing where everyone was included. And he's like, yeah, we're going to self-gentrify the development that we're doing and make sure because we're making sure there's local job creation and business development you know, for the folks that live in this historically poor community right next door. And I was like, self-gentrification. So I didn't make it up. I'm just following another Carter's lead. But I love that idea. It was, it was development that was by them and for them that included the university as well as the town next door. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that is so cool. And why can't we do that in other parts of the country? Like, why can't we do that in my community and other communities everywhere? And, you know, why is it there's this thing that people in low-status communities don't like or deserve nice things? They do. You know, as I personally think that gentrification happens long before, you know, you start seeing, you know, white people informally, you know, people of color neighborhoods. It starts happening when we start telling, you know, the young, you know, hardworking, quote unquote, smart kids that they need to measure success by how far they get away from from our communities. Like what you were told. Yes, exactly. Because it teaches us to not see value in it so that when the time comes when others are looking at our community and going, oh, that's a development opportunity. We're the first ones to say, oh, sure, I'll sell it to you for next to nothing because why? You're, you must be stupid if you see any value in this, whereas they're thinking about the long game. And instead, we're thinking about we just need to get out of this place because it's so horrible. And that is a problem you know, for us. And it's something that I've absolutely dedicated my life's work to in showing how do you, you know, essentially reduce brain drain because that's what it is. I mean, we just built um, a coffee shop in our community as a way to um, reduce that brain drain because we've done hundreds and hundreds of surveys where we've asked people, like, what kind of stuff do you want to see, you know, in your community? What would keep you from, from leaving? And people were like, well, you know, it'd be kind of nice to have a place you know, that's not a dingy community center because that seems like that's all we have around here. And it's just like, yeah, nobody wants to go to those things anyway. (laughs) And they don't, um, as evidenced by their numbers. And so we built this beautiful little coffee shop. And it's just been wonderful to see folks come in. And on some level, many people will say, oh, my gosh, I don't feel like I'm in the Bronx. Oh, my gosh, like I don't expect to see something so nice here. 
And I'm like, why do we not expect to see nice things here? Why? No. So we challenge that notion. And our goal is to really sort of export this model. The South Bronx really is my research and development lab. But it's because, you know, in part because it's easy to walk to wherever I want to go. <laughs> but the other thing is that, you know, I really do feel that if we can prove out these models here, they will work everywhere. Because believe me, we've got a lot that's working against us to push these things forward. So what's working against Majora's efforts? After the break, we'll find out. Hey, I'm Brian Babylon. Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. Economic recovery is no easy task. In many cities, incomes are shrinking and families and communities are struggling. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to helping solve the problem. J.P. Morgan Chase is deploying $1 billion towards programs focused on expanding access to opportunities and advancing economic growth around the world. Here's some exclusive content all about J.P. Morgan Chase's economic impact in Detroit. A lifelong resident of Detroit and philanthropy manager at the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation, Tasha Tabern has witnessed great changes in her home city. She explains how the bank's partnership with Liberty Bank has created new opportunities for Detroit homeowners in need of loans. Our partnership with Liberty Bank is $6 million over five years with the hopes that Liberty Bank would be able to put out $20 million in capital towards loans for homeowners. And part of that has the down payment assistance program connected to that. So there's some dollars available for grants for homeowners. We've been pleased with the outreach to our residents so far on the program and hopeful that we can reach more markets and more neighborhoods in the future. J.P. Morgan Chase is focused on helping all communities. Learn more by going to jpmorganchase.com. From Slate Magazine, it's Placemakers. I'm Rebecca Shear. Hi there. Go with that. Good morning. We're back at Birch Coffee in the South Bronx with Majora Carter. Now, if you pull up a chair at one of the three or four tables in this cozy space, you can sip your favorite espresso drink, you can nibble on a pastry from a trendy bakery in Brooklyn, and as Majora explains to a customer the morning I stopped by, Have you had the teas here? No. You can savor a mug of specialty herbal tea. It's got real pieces of toasted almond and apple. It is yummy, and it looks really beautiful. It's literally pink. If you want to taste, if you want to try that, we can just give, we can just give you a taste. Okay. But as Majora will tell you, this coffee shop in the Bronx's Hunts Point neighborhood is about way more than artisanal scones and yummy hot beverages. We really wanted to create this this ambiance here that you when you walked in, you were immediately welcomed and appreciated and going to be offered some of the best coffee New York City has to offer and uh, with a smile and with love. Like, that's really what we do. Our partner, um, one of their taglines is Birch Loves You and was something that really attracted um, us to them was just that level of customer service because, you know, sometimes people in our communities are not necessarily known for, um, you know, or, or the, the, the merchants are not necessarily known for being like the best in customer service. So we wanted to create an, an, an atmosphere in which that was expected here in our community. So we're really excited about that. But the thing is, not everybody in Hunts Point is as excited about Majora's work there. 
She talked more about that in Slate's studio, where she told me a story about the people she facetiously calls the Majora Carter fan club. So I was going downtown early one morning, and I noticed on this mural that actually I'd done um, was a somebody had plastered a sticker on it, and the sticker said a quote, which was attributed to me, and it was my quote, which is, I believe that the approach we're doing is self-gentrification, which, of course, I stand behind because that is what I do. But they had attributed the quote to me as Majora Carter, local sellout, and also hashtag Columbus syndrome. <laughs> and, and, and at first I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is horrible. Like, wh- why would someone say that? It's like, and then, and then I realized I was like, oh, well, they're not a student of history because they, I guess they don't know that I'm from literally this neighborhood, one. And so I'm hardly Columbus kids. Oh, and the thing is, there was also a coffee cup, an icon of a coffee cup on it. So clearly it was a smack against, um, you know, me and, you know, building this coffee shop is like this, this like great gentrifier that's coming from outside the neighborhood to do this. And I thought, really? You're spending all your time running around making stickers. And it was actually a very nicely designed sticker. I was pretty impressed. Um, But it was like, really, instead of having a conversation with me, you're going to just try to hide behind a sticker. And then they, of course, wouldn't talk to me after that. I know. I mean, I know. You know who they are. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I I want want to um, talk about something that, that came up before this interview when we were arranging things. Your communications staff said, you know, you'd be more than happy to talk with us. We could talk with you. We were thrilled. But there was a particular condition that was set. There, there were certain words that we could not use when describing you. And I want to read this list and ask you why you feel these words don't fit Majora Carter. So here we go. Fight, justice, struggle, tireless, thankless, activist, activism, racist, racism, environmentalist, environmentalism, so given who you are and what you do, why do you feel these words are inappropriate? Uh, inappropriate would be the wrong word, but it's sort of like, I mean, in part, you know, the way that I've been treated by, you know, the social justice um, activist community, uh, you know, and many of them have remained silent, even though there have been very, very public, you know, attacks against me. I mean, incredibly public. More so than a sticker on a mural. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like a year-long social media campaign where it was just like Majora's a sellout, la, la, la. And it was just kind of like, well, if this is what you think of me, I don't want to be in your club. I really don't. I, I have no interest in it. And also, I just, I really don't want to be associated, you know, with a, a group of people, you know, who are only pushing to fight against something and not for something. Like, I do want to be known as different period. And um, I believe in the self-determination of all people. And, you know, and if that's the way people want to define themselves, so be it. But I've also known in the line of work that I've decided to put myself in, which is about development, I can't be those things because people will not take me seriously. And it's tough enough for me to be a black woman doing what I'm doing and to be kind of lumped into, you know, folks that are generally known to not do much of anything. Those are the words that describe them. So words like fight and struggle, those can be nouns or verbs. What would you switch them with? What would be more apropos for what you're doing? Build. (laughs) Transform. Love. I mean, these are words I use all the time as we speak about community building. And 
and even real estate development because these are the kind of communities like we want to show you don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. And when people think about living in a neighborhood, they're not thinking about fight or when, of the community of their dreams. They're not fighting in it. They're not struggling in it. It's not, oh, I got to put on my armor all the time. And I mean, I don't want to live like that. I don't. I don't know if, well, I know of a few people who love living like that, but, you know, they don't speak to me. They cross to the other side of the street when they, literally, when they see me coming. And I'm like, okay, the sidewalk isn't big enough for both of us. You may move because I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so you don't feel personal hurt anymore when people treat you like that oh, in, your, in your own neighborhood where you grew up? Oh, of course I do. I mean, I'm human. So, you know, and I literally have, you know, and again, it's not, believe me, it's not many. It really isn't. It's a handful of folks. I mean, I know their names. Um, to have tried to reach out to them, they refuse to speak to me. Um, and at some point, you know, I hope that they find enough love and courage in their own hearts where they can actually not just see me. They need to see themselves and wonder why they act like this because I have plenty of love. Believe me, all I had to do was open that coffee shop. Majora, what do you want your legacy to be? Mm. I want to be known as someone who got caught trying. Yep. Trying to make communities that didn't think much of themselves see themselves as fabulous, powerful, beautiful, loving, kind members of this world. That's what I want people to say about me. And chances are, they will. Now, I'm not going to call Majora Carter a fighter or an activist. I'm not going to talk about her struggle for justice. But the Majora I spoke with is a passionate person, a dedicated person. And yeah, so maybe she's gone from being a local grassroots figure to kind of a rock star. And maybe not everyone is thrilled about that. But in a neighborhood so often known for poverty and crime, in a place that was literally on fire just a few decades back, Majora Carter is a hometown girl who's trying to prove that Hunts Point can be something, something more, even if... Back in the day, it was a place she wanted nothing to do with. Placemakers is a production of Slate Magazine and is produced by Mia Lobel, Diana Douglas, and Michael Volo, and edited by Julia Barton. Our researcher is Matthew Schwartz. Eric Shimalonis does our mixing and musical scoring. Our theme was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. I'm Rebecca Shear. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Placemakers, go to slate.com slash placemakers. You can drop us a line at placemakers at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Slate Placemaker. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review or rating on iTunes. It really does help. Coming up next time on Placemakers, what happens when your golden years aren't so golden? For older Americans who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, that's very often the case. Yes, we age just like everybody else ages, but we age in many cases with differences. And we're concerned that our caregivers aren't going to understand or accept that. We'll meet the 82-year-old transgender activist who's giving GLBT seniors a safe, affordable place to call home.
Why can't we be ahead of the game as opposed to just assuming like, oh, gentrification just happens? You know, it's not like, oh, you know, white people in doggy daycares are coming. It's not true. It's not true. Hey, guys. Yep, I'm still here. Those of you still around, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Placemakers, we want to learn more about you, our listeners, and your opinions. We know you guys have strong opinions, so we created a quick survey that we'd love for you to take. If you fill it out, you'll automatically be entered for a chance to win a $150 Amazon gift card. And you'll be helping us continue to create content that makes your ears and your brain happy. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey2. That's slate.com slash survey2. Thank you.